This is the Relevant Life Church podcast, where we are about connecting with God, relating to people, and reaching our world. Tune in as our church goes through this week's teaching in God's Word. And everyone said, Amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming to Relevant Life Church. As you turn to your neighbor, you'd, would you say, you look mighty fine? You look mighty fine. Come on, I want to hear it across the room. You look mighty fine. I, uh, as I look out this morning, I know, realize that, it, sorry. We got it here. We got it here. I realize that uh, uh, it's spring break, and I'm like going, where's everybody at? But it's spring break today. Thank you for showing up to church on spring break as you, as you head out this week and do whatever you're going to do. We applaud you and we pray for you, but thank you for showing up. If you're online today, thank you for showing up. Thank you for making time for Jesus, and thank you so much for being generous with Boys and Girls Missionary Challenge. You know, boys are going to win, of course, but no, can I tell you, uh, we, we, love, we love the competition, we love all that, but seriously, the part that, that joys my heart is that missions always wins, and uh, I, I love to see your participation and your faithfulness in that. I wanted to say a thank you uh, to an online donor as well as to you. Uh, we received this week a $300 donation to Amplify, right? Uh, from someone that does not attend Relevant Life Church uh, on a regular basis. They've been here a few times off and on. But I love that because you're saying, well, what does Amplify? I'm a pastor that loves to empower the younger generation. We have a young, we have a young staff, and I love that. But I think about it as the idea of Amplify is to discover their gifts and abilities, to develop their gifts and abilities, and for them to deploy their gifts and abilities. Isn't that what we're all about? Isn't that what, isn't that what the church is? You know, and so I, I love that. that you, the reason I bring that up is because of this. It's evident that you love the younger generation. Thank you for loving the younger generation. Thank you for not just loving them, but empowering them to become. Uh, and if you have, we've all been a younger generation at one time or another, and how many have been empowered by the older generation? Can I tell you that that's so very vital and so important? Today, love where you live. Everyone say it. Love where you live. Uh, we're we're uh, week five of our family phase, the final week of our family phase, that next week we're going to be stepping into community, but we've been dialoguing this question throughout this series is, what would happen? Everyone say, what would happen? What if, just what if, what would happen if you truly loved where you lived? What would happen? What if? I love those what-if scenarios. Are, is anybody daydreamers here? Anybody uh, dreamers and imaginary people that you can just step back and go, you know, well, what if? Have you really ever sat back and said, what if God would? What if God could? What if, what if I would just be? Can you just imagine the greatness and power of God doing what God does? Can I tell you, that's faith. That's really what God's calling us back to, is stepping into this reality of going, what if God would? And God's going, I want to, will you let me do it through you? I want to. You know, when we go, whenever we come to the what-ifs of God, we always see this power that is there, but God's going, I want a person to work through. I want to do it through somebody. He can do it alone, but He wants to do it with us. And so that's what's so exciting. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see Him once again through the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, but you uh, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Why? For boldness, that you would be effective, that you would love where you live. That you, that you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this whole 
process, this phases that we've been looking at as personal transformation, that loving where you live begins with you. Loving where you live is transitioned from you and given to your family. Loving where you live is transitioned from you to your family and into your community. And then when we get into the community, we go, no, eventually we're going to be greater and we're going to be grander and we're going to impact our cities. Our, our li- the community is going to be transformed. And so we've been in this phase number two. What would happen? What would happen if you loved your home? What would happen if you loved your home? I uh, love to imagine what would happen in my home, when I, especially when my kids were home. And my, now I imagine what would happen in my home with my grandkids and the legacy that's taking on and the, the motion that's forward. I began even this week, in all honesty, began to be challenged to go, what would happen if I loved my home with just my wife and I there? What would happen? What's the dynamic that would truly change? And I hope that you began to embrace that question, embrace that that idea and that desire, because it has to be born somewhere. It has to be birthed somewhere. And how many know that there's the act of consummation and a seed is planted, but it takes a while for that to germinate? takes a while for that to grow, and that's why these phases, we're, trying to, we're not trying to just be repetitious over and over and over again, but we realize that there is a process of a seed that's being planted, and a seed that has to germinate, and a seed that has to grow. And so in all of us, as we begin to think about these phases, that's what's happening. Man, last week, Pastor Trenton preached on the power of the Word of God, right? Was it not powerful? I, I brought my Bible to my plat- the platform today, not to show it off, but because I was so... He, he could have gone all the way by going, start bringing your paper Bibles. And I'm going to say to you, start bringing your paper Bibles. If you have your Bible, lift it up, in the head, lift it up today. Not, yes, you have it on electronics, but I want, to, want the paper. Can I challenge you today? I want to challenge you to begin to bring the Word of God. Yes, I, I'm all for electronics. I'm all for all that stuff. But can I tell you, there is something significant about this. Something significant about this. I'll tell you this, you're not going to be able to give your Bible app as a legacy to a family member. You can give this as a legacy to a family member. So I want to challenge you. Let's resurrect, bring it back into the house. Let's carry it around with us. Some of you have those Bibles that'll choke a meal, and uh, you might need a wheelbarrow to, bring it, to carry it for you, but hey. But as we finish up this phase today, wrestled with this sermon all week long. This is a sermon that I've probably for the last two weeks going, ugh, why do I have this topic? Why do I have this? And the Holy Spirit always knows what he's doing. But I want to come today with something probably very practical. It is very practical. It's very simple. Uh, not, not profound in any way, shape, or form. You can sit there and judge me if you want to when it's all said and done. But I want to tell you that I'm walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit today. I've walked through the process and I've navigated it. And I think this is a tool today that many of us have forsaken. Many of our homes have forsaken. Many of our families have forsaken. But I can tell you that it has has had an extreme impact on people up to this day and age in our culture. We've had a tremendous four weeks of challenge of how do how of what we as parents should be doing, what we as families should be doing. And if you're ever like me as a as a parent or someone sitting back going, yeah, it's nice that they're talking about this. Do they really do this themselves? Man, they're just giving me more responsibility and more chores. Don't they realize my life is busy? Does anybody ever feel like that? Don't they realize that, oh, I, I, don't, I have enough on my plate already? Today, I don't want to come and actually put one more thing on your plate. I actually want to give you a space and time to utilize what we've been talking about. 
an activity, a thing that we can apply to our lives. And I will tell you this, that anything of value demands time. Anything of value demands time. Anything that you want uh, to have results is going to take time from you, and it's actually going to take this thing called sacrifice. It takes priority. This idea of price is not the same as value. Price is what you pay, and value is what you get. I want you to think about that statement today. Price is not the same as value. Price is what you pay and value is what you get. As you step back and you begin to look at your life and you see price tags on things that you're going to purchase, price tags on education, price tags on a car, price tags on a house, price tags on whatever, you have to step back and go, hopefully, you know I mean? I'm a kind of person that goes, I want a good deal. How many want a good deal? I mean, I want a good deal, but I'm looking for the good deal that has value. I'm, you know, if you shop on Amazon, how many use the stars? Before you purchase something, you go, oh, no, that's really cool. No, you, anybody out there use the stars? I go, go no, is this, is this real? Is this, is this really the value that they're saying? This idea of value is what you get. In our culture today, probably the most valuable thing, the most valuable commodity is what I'm going to say is time. Every one of us has 24 hours a day. You can't purchase more, more time. You can't, you, can, you, can't, you, can't make time, you can't make time multiply. Either you, use your, either you spend your time or you invest your time. Either you spend it on frivolous things that you can never redeem or you can invest it that hopefully, knowing God's pattern of sowing and reaping, that as you, as you invest it, it's going to come up somewhere else. It's going to be multiplied. Today I want to talk about a tool that I think that many times we've overlooked. Uh, the value of tools. I'm going to pick on someone today just because I know this individual loves tools. Sasser loves tools. Uh, Sasser has, has an addiction to tools, and today this is an intervention. <laughs> We're having an intervention today. Uh, he doesn't just have one of every tool. He's got like five of every tool. You know what I mean? So it's like if you need a tool, call him up. Don't go to the store and buy it. Go say, hey, Sasser, do you have a tool I can borrow, right? Uh, and what I know is this. In the process of getting his tool, you also get him to help you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but the value of using the right tool. How many, you know, I know me. It doesn't matter if I have the right tool in my hand or not. The project's still going to fail. Why? Because you either have to, you have to have a skill, but you also have to have knowledge of the tool, right? You know, I think back and I think of, so I'm going to give you guys a little quiz here. If you have a nail, what tool do you need? If you have a screw, what tool do you need? If you have butter, what tool do you need? Wow, you guys are really good. You're smart. If you have to clip your nail, what do you need to have? Can I tell you, you know, we can step back and we can look at all these different tools. Those tools were created for a purpose, for a specific reason there was a tool that was made. But if you're like me and probably many of us in this room, how many of you have ever used a butter knife to screw a screw in? How many have ever used the heel of your shoe to pound in a nail? Right? I mean, you step back and go, okay, was it, how many have ever used a pocket knife to clip your nails? That's why I'm short a finger. No, just kidding. 
But I realize this, that whether you have the right tool or the wrong tool, there's a job that needs to be done, but it's better if you're using the right tool. And today I believe that throughout history, I believe that in our lives, there's been a tool that has been given to us that is there, that's sitting idle, that is oftentimes ignored, oftentimes taken for granted, and I want to raise a little bit of focus and attention on it. It It's a tool that I believe that 99.9% of every home has one. Psalms 128, we looked at this scripture a couple weeks ago. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Around your table, there's a tool in our homes that is available to each one of us. You're saying, well, I am anti-table. My table is for junk and for clutter, whatever it might be. But I will tell you this. I was watching a commercial the other day. It was a recent, recent furniture commercial uh, as prior to, a couple weeks ago. And it highlighted the importance of a table, of a kitchen table. And uh, every home has one. Every home, you know, it's probably one of the most sellable items that is there. As I look back over my life, as I saw that commercial, as I look back over our family life particularly, uh, in raising our kids, our kitchen table was the center of all of family activity. Our kitchen table was the forefront of everything we did. We ate at it. We did homework at it. We played games at it. We did our budget at it. We did our devotions at it. Our kids drew at it. There are puzzles that were put together. Science project boards were made at our kitchen table. Gatherings, buffets, phone calls, conversations. Our table was filled with memories of laughter, memories of tears, of frustrations, of prayers that were prayed. Yes, and clutter. Yes, and clutter. It was the center, you know, everything would kind of get dropped there. Our table, you know, is today, our table that we have is in our dining room right now that we have with our children. Our, that table has scars and scratches that, scary story, that carry stories and memories of our family. It was there. It's part of. And I began to step back and go, what would my table speak if it could speak? What stories would my table tell if it could tell a story? What, ta- what stories would your table tell? Is it one that's utilized? Is it just a piece of furniture that's overlooked? Is it just a piece of furniture that is there? Or is it something that you are using? The profound definition of a table is this, a piece of furniture usually supported by one or more legs having a flat top surface on which objects can be placed. But I want to add this to the definition. The table is a place where we interact with others. Everyone say interact. The purpose is not to be an inanimate object that just sits there with no purpose. The purpose is to be used to interact with others, family, friends, colleagues, rivals. There are perhaps more kinds of tables than there are any other type of furniture. There's kitchen tables, dining room tables, coffee tables, drafting tables, billiard tables, chess tables, table tennis tables, communion tables, dressing tables, operating tables, library tables, bedside tables, night tables, end tables, sofa tables, and I could go on and on and on. All of these different tables, they have one thing that unites them, not just that they have a flat top, but the thing that unites every table is that it has a purpose to put something on for people to gather around. It's a gathering place. It's a place for people to congregate. 
The value of this table, I read this quote this week, is that we might buy it for a style. It may even be given to us. We may build it. But more than any other piece of furniture in our house, our tables have the power to make and define us. To shape us, to define us, and to determine our everyday lives. And the wives are thinking right now, going, honey, I want a new table. I think about it, and as much as Ron and I, we've had our, that table for many, many years, and we've dialogued getting something new. Can I tell you, as I began to think about it this week, going, the stories that are in that table, the memories around that table, the value of that table, not monetary value, the value of my, what impacted my family and people around that table. As early as 1943, researchers were f- discussing the benefits of the family table, from a sociological and a cultural viewpoint, family, family table talk is an essential part of the process whereby family inducts the child into the life of society. Think about that. Think about, just, just think about the statement of that this is the moment, the place where children become adults, where they learn to have conversations, where they learn to have social lives. Family meals allow the parents to impart values and traditions as well as to demonstrate appropriate relationships, communication techniques, and problem-solving skills. Family meals are powerful for many reasons. Family mealtimes impact all of our senses, the sight, the touch, taste, and smell. As well as listening to family conversation, family meals offer opportunities to spend time together, reconnect after a busy day, communicate with, the, communicate with and to learn to listen to each other, to share values and ideas and to problem solve. Family meals contribute to traditions that, that tie families together. Think about what are your traditions on the holidays? Where do they gather around? The table. They gather around this thing called the table. The table brings security. They permit parental monitoring of children and behavior and activities, providing parents and families with insight into the emotional well-being of those that they care for. The family is one of the very few places that children can observe their parents interact. It's one of the few places that Children can watch their parents negotiate and solve problems, express emotions, and treat one another with respect. As I step back and I look, and you're going to see in the following statistics, the amount of lack of use of the family table, the amount of lack of use of what's taking place. And if you are already participating, you're in a, high per, you're in a very low percentage on top, of the, on top of the rack here. According to a study of 26,000 kids and teenagers published in April of 2020 in the Journal of Adolescent Health states this, that over the past three decades, the last 30 years, family time at the dinner table and family conversation in general has declined by more than 40%. Families with children under the age of 18 report having family dinners two to three times per week. One-third of the families with 11 to 18-year-olds only eat one or two meals a week together. Less than one-fourth of these families that were, in, were, were studied eat five or more meals per week together. What happens in these statistics? Statistics reveal to us that language development is enhanced. It reveals that teens who have dinner with their families several times a week are 40% more likely to have A's and B's. 
They're more like three, three times more likely to have an excellent relationship with their mother. They're five times more likely to have an excellent relationship with their father. They're two times more likely to have an excellent relationship with their siblings. 71% of teenagers considered talking and catching up and spending time with the family the best part and highlight of their week. They are 35% likely to engage in eating disorders. They are less likely to engage in drug use. They are less likely to have emotional and behavioral problems. Children who family, who, whose family had positive family meal experiences by the age of six were less likely to demonstrate physical aggression, oppositional behavior, non-aggressive delinquency, and reactive aggression. Teens were less likely to experience depression. Teens were less likely to report a suicide attempt. I could go on and on and on. If you begin to go on and just Google results and statistics about the table, can I tell you it's page after page after page that these are sociologists. These are worldly people that are not, this is not a biblical perspective, church. This is every day life perspective of people that are doing a study to go, no, we need family time. We need this thing called the table. What's fascinating to me is not just in the world is it important, but it's also very, very important to our faith. It's very, very important in Scripture. When we think about the significance of the table being the center of religious practices, if we want to go back to the Old Testament, you go back to the Old Testament, and a major piece of furniture in the book of Exodus was, was the table that was developed, that was overlaid with gold, and on that table would be 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The significance of that table, it was symbolic of God's presence, God's, God's protection, and God's provision. We fast forward to the New Testament, and we once again have a very supreme place that we have to gather around, and that's the communion table. Where the, where the items, the emblems of Christ's blood are there. And the significance, as we know as, as Christians today, is it's a place of sacrifice for salvation, a place of forgiveness, a place of hope for eternal life, this gathering place that we go back and you can't, you can't get far past it. And if we were to fast forward to the book of Revelations, there is going to be the, the, the banquet of the Lamb around a large, what? Table. The table, the significant foreplay, for, uh, place, forward-looking place that we have to go, no, there is something not just practically there, there's something spiritually that is there. I want to take us to Psalms 23, and I'm going to read one verse out of Psalms 23. Psalms 23, probably the most read passage of Scripture at a funeral. One of the passages of Scripture that brings great comfort. It's one that we see that the Lord is what? What's the word there? The Lord is my. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a, it's a personal connection with what God is. And in this passage of Scripture, it reveals, this whole entire chapter reveals how God cares for you and me. And I don't have time to preach on the entirety of Psalms 23, but I want to take us fast forward to Psalms 23, verse 5. And the psalmist, David, is writing here, and he's speaking very personally to the Lord, his shepherd. And in verse 5, he says, you, you, God, prepare a table for me. In the presence of my enemies, you have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Everyone say, you prepare a table for me. 
God, today I pray that through the power of your word, through the power of a fallible human, God, today would you bring clarity? Would you bring, bring conviction? Would you bring empowerment? God, would you bring creativity? God, in the name of Jesus, amen. I love this. God prepares a table for me. God prepares a table for you. When I think about someone preparing a table for me, I'm not just talking about driving through the drive-thru and getting a bag of chicken nuggets. I'm walking through the front door and immediately the aroma of food arrests my senses. Come into the kitchen and I'm going, God, can I help you? He goes, no, 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 no. I'm preparing the table for you. You just sit down and I want to have a conversation with you. And he's sautéing and frying and baking, whatever it is your favorite, favorite meal is. God knows you, and he's creating your meal for you. He says, I'm preparing a table for you. As I began to think about that, and probably on my culinary level as well as my, my taste, I began to imagine, what does your table look like when God prepares a table for you? What does it look like? Is it paper plates? Or is it his best china? Is it a value? Or is it of insignificance? Is it just paper napkins or is it cloth napkins? When I began to think about who God is and what God wants for me, I began to go to grandiose. That he's got his gold candlesticks on the table and he's got the, the, the plates of every shape and size that you need. And he's like going, I don't know which fork to use, God. And he's going, use this one because this is what it's for. Anybody ever go to a fancy restaurant, a fancy dinner, and you're like going, there's like five forks here. Which one am I supposed to use? Can I tell you, when I began to think about that, yes, I want comfort, yes, I want relationship, but when I think about what God does, God doesn't do anything halfway. God is big and God is grand. And when he thinks about you and your value, he's going, I value you, so I want you to realize how big and grand I am. And he prepares this table for me. I love it because it's not a past tense preparation. It doesn't say you prepared a table for me. It doesn't say you will prepare a table for me. It says you prepare. It's present tense. Can I tell you that this God who loves you and me, this God who wants to provide for us, is continually preparing a table for us? He's preparing this table that every time we will step into his presence, every time we come into the door with him, we should have an aroma that is there. Our senses senses should be stirred. That there is something that he's preparing for you and for me. When you came this morning, did you have a sense of what God is doing in us? Did you have a sense of what God wants to do in your life? There's this preparation for us, an anticipation. He's preparing a table before us. And what I love about this is it's not just any table in the middle of a quiet dining room. It's in the presence of my enemies. When you think about this whole, uh, whole storyline that is taking place, this symbolism that is here, the shepherd starts out, in the, starts out in the field, the green pastures. He leads me there. He leads me through all these different things. And in the middle, as, as I began to imagine, in the middle of this, it says, in the, in the presence of your enemies, in the middle of all of this horror that were around us. It's like God shines a spotlight and because he's so powerful, the sun shines and the blue sky is right above us and it's all green and filled with flowers in this table and then around us is barrenness and a battlefield. It's significant because we need to step back and realize what the psalmist is saying here. 
That God cares so much about us that God wants us to come to his prepared table. That God wants us to know that you and I are so important to him that he has it fashioned for you and for me. And it's in the middle of all of the hubbub of life and the busyness of life and the crazy of life and the culture that is falling apart that God goes, no, this is a place of quiet. This is a place where it might look like crap out there, but it's going to look like beauty in here. Just as God prepares a table for us, I believe that we as families, as parents, are to create a table for our families. This preparing of this table, it takes a lot of work. It takes the menu that you have to write. It takes gathering the recipes. It goes to get the shopping list for those recipes, finding the favorite foods of those that are going to come. It's the preparation. It's the baking. It's the cooking. It's the setting of that table. It's the setting of the tone of your home, timing everything to come out of the oven at the right time so that the rolls are still warm along with the chicken or turkey or whatever it is that you're cooking. And then there's the cleanup at the end. I think about holiday meals and I go, all the time that is invested of days of preparation, how fast is done in moments. I think that there's something significant about that, that, that I think we've, in our busyness, we've gotten so focused on let's just get done rather than let's linger. How often do we do that with God of going, God, thank you for the meal. I got to go. Rather than going, God, I just want to linger. I want to enjoy. I want to encounter. He prepares a table, and I love it for me. It's special for me. It's special for my needs. If you're gluten-free, he's got it. If it's dietary needs, he's got it. If you have a certain want, he's got it. If you have a favorite meal, he's got it. I think about whenever I go home to my mom's house, my mom prepares a table for me. When I say prepares a table for me, there are favorite foods that my mom said, every single time I go, there is going to be homemade cinnamon rolls. And because I'm unique, she makes me homemade caramel nut cinnamon rolls. Raspberry pie, pork roast, ribs, fried egg sandwiches, French toast. She prepares the menu for Kevin. Can I tell you the same thing that when you have, when you begin to have, when she had grandkids, that as my grandkids, they, they began, my kids began to horn in on my favoritism. And she started going, well, no, Trenton likes broccoli chicken casserole. So, and I'm like going, well, mom, that's not my favorite. It's his. <laughs> it's preparing a table for me, the uniqueness of, in the presence of. In the presence of stress and angst and hardship and dysfunction, the table should be a place of reprieve and normalcy. Can I tell you the world is a battle zone? The world's a battle zone. When you go to work, when you step into the culture, there's a battle that's raging. When your children step into culture, there is a battle that is raging. And there's something significant that takes place around the table. And it isn't necessarily about what is on the table. It's about who is at the table. It's not about what is on the table, it's about who is at the table. So today I want to give you three things very simply in preparation for, the, for your table. Number one, you have to plan for togetherness. Togetherness doesn't happen by happenstance. 
Togetherness doesn't happen by luck. Togetherness happens because you plan. And you're saying, well, Pastor Kevin, I don't have kids in my home. Do you need togetherness with your spouse? Do you need togetherness with your sibling? Do you need togetherness with your roommate? Do you need togetherness? You have to plan for togetherness. The key of the table is togetherness. This isn't just for families uh, with children. Benjamin Franklin says this, if you, plan, if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. Many times we think, well, it's family, so I'm just gonna, we're just going to wing it, and it's just going to happen. Can I tell you today that the last four weeks of sermons don't just happen. If you don't plan for them, if you don't invest in them, if you don't say, I want value in them, they will never happen. If you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. Together, this is definition, the quality or state or condition of what? Of being together. Not just being together, not just being in the same room together, but a key phrase here is the pleasant feeling of being united. There's a step that's even further in this togetherness. It's not just being together. It's not just being in this room and we have others around us. There's a, a uniqueness of united, of being on the same plan, the same purpose, the same calling. We don't just have the same last name. We have the same direction. This idea of fostering togetherness is, is in an age marked by individualism can be a challenge. But we have to make every effort to rise above that challenge. Within our families is where we first learn manners. In our families is where we learn how to communicate. In our families is where we learn how to empathize with others. In our families is where we learn how to properly express emotions. Can I tell you, in our families is where we learn how to look into someone else's eyes when we're talking to them. Family is where we should feel the safest. It's where we should be able to come and have this environment that is there. I have a picture here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the rules right here. Talk about rules for family. You'll, you can see it on, on, on the uh, Bible app, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. If you want this, you can look there real quickly or you can snap a picture. But the one that I want to step to real quickly for time's sake is set the table. Set the table. This can be overwhelming to us. You know, I don't... I, I, step back and go, is this necessary? Is this important? And I want to come to a place metaphorically, and then I want to come to a place realistically. Metaphorically, when we set the table, we're communicating something to the people that are going to sit at that table. We're communicating value. We're communicating, no, you're important, and I want to make this a special thing. I go back to this idea of metaphorically, the, the table is, is, is something that brings importance to us. It's not just, a, not just a thing that we're doing with dishes, but preparing and setting the table emotionally and mentally. That you as a parent, that you as an individual, that you're bringing your best to the table so that the best us can come away from the table. But I think of realistically, I learned how to set the table by my grandma. Anybody really know how to set a table where the fork and knives and spoons and all those sorts of things go? One, I think that this is really important that you do know so that when you go into a restaurant, you know what to use and not make a fool out of yourself. Ron and I have been at tables that were like going, what do we do? What's this for? Fortunately, on the phone, you can kind of Google and go, oh, that's what that is. Just so you know, if you're using forks, you have several forks, you always go from the outside in, just so you just, just, just realize, outside in. So the first fork you're going to use is usually going to be a salad fork, and that's the first one, and you leave it on your plate. You don't put it back on your napkin because there's four other forks there. 
okay? And lesson to, lesson to learn, you do not use one of these forks for your dessert because your dessert fork is above your plate. Complicated. You say, why is this important? One, the table is where manners begin. And parents, you're not just there to make sure that your kid grows up to be an adult and can be, support themselves. You're educating your child. You're developing your social abilities of your child. You're, it's a full-fledged interaction that you are needed to be instructing, teaching them how to set the table. Now, you may not want to go as fancy as this, but it's important that we understand that when you set a table, you're setting the tone of what, what it is in, to be together. You're planning for the tone. It's an emotional tone. It's a setting tone. It's a, the, the, the feeling that should be there. It communicates the importance of being, uh, uh, that you're putting extra effort in. Ron and I realized early on that we didn't have the capacity to, she probably did, I didn't. I'm going to say I didn't have the capacity to put a fancy meal together and to set the table and then to have quality family time because I'm an A, a personality and everything's got to be perfect. So it's like, sit down and shut up. I got the table set and the food is coming. Now let's have a conversation. <laughs> I realized early on that for us to flourish in the table, what I put on the table had to be secondary to what, who was at the table. Yes, I wanted good food, and yes, we would have holidays, and yes, we would do these things, but I remember Trenton's favorite meal growing up was, as he would say it, Cushago pizza from Papa Murphy's. It was actually Chicago pizza, but he couldn't get it right, so... Cushago pizza. I want Cushago. Why? Was it easy? Put it in the oven and you can focus on the family rather than on the food. The reality that I've discovered about this idea of planning for the table. The table is a prioritization of time. Everyone say time. When you plan, you're giving time. You're dedicating time to. The reality is that quality time is buried somewhere in the middle of quantity time. And if you think you can go, I'm just going to give a half hour for a meal and that's quality time. No, quality time is couched somewhere in the middle of quantity time. And if, you've, if you have a family of young kids, you realize that you might have a minute of quality time here and 25 minutes of bedlam. Right? The French eat very differently than we as Americans do. It is calculated that by the time a child is three they have been exposed to about 2,000 hours of mealtime. In comparison to children in America, a child most likely will go through their entire childhood without reaching that number. The difference, how you've patterned and how you've planned. So today I'm going to put this up here real quickly and you can take a picture so I don't, because this is not on your app. But if you want to plan, where do you, you've got to begin somewhere. Begin somewhere to find, communicate, and live out family values. Discover what makes your kids feel connected. Determine to prioritize, to prioritize togetherness. And this can go all across the board, but this is just a practical slide for you real quickly. The next one I want to go to is nourish the soul. Nourish the soul. Good, for, good food nourishes the body, but good connection nourishes the soul. Can I tell you that we live in a culture today with malnourished people, malnourished in, in, in uh, 
food-wise as well as relational-wise. This word nourish is to provide substances necessary for growth, health, and good condition. When I think about the table of God that he prepares for you, for you and for me, he comes to nourish us. He comes to nourish our souls. His word, the word of God, nourishes us. When we step into prayer with him, his presence nourishes us. He comes to sustain us, to, to bring a, a sense of presence in our lives. And I can tell you this, I love me some good food. I love nutritious food. I love food that's nourishing. Give me, give me meat. Give me some vegetables. Give me a nice loaf of warm bread, and I'm happy. Anybody else out there? Food is probably one of my love languages. And I can tell you this, that I believe that God loves me enough that he probably put that in me, and he probably put it in you too, because you know what? He gave us over 10,000 taste buds for a reason. To enjoy, to sense. Can you imagine not having taste buds, COVID indefinitely? Not ability to taste things. That food was only there for you to uh, fuel your body rather than to have pleasure in it. When I think about this idea of nourishing, God comes and there's times that he uses the really good foods. He wants us to have the good foods. He gives us these good quality things to nourish our souls. Good housekeeping declared that we live in a culture that is a junk food culture. So as I talk about healthy foods, can I tell you, I'm all for some junk food. Give me a bag of nacho cheese Doritos, chocolate peanut butter ice cream, Tillamook, the brand, warm fresh cookies, maple bars, <laughs> junk food, right? But I can tell you the nourishment from those versus the nourishment over here, the weight gain from those versus the not weight gain from those over here. This old adage, garbage in and garbage out. You are what you eat. What you consume is what you become. We realize that with food, what you serve is what your family becomes. So I'm talking, yes, slightly towards the way that you want to have a healthy meal, but I want to go deeper than that. Are you serving connection? Are you serving relationship? Are you serving time of where they have your undivided attention? This idea of nourish is we nourish with our conversation. It's learning to have back and forth conversation, learning to listen to understand, not listen to have a counterattack. I want you to hear me this morning that in our culture, we're good to listen for a counterattack. We're poor at listening to understand. And where that begins is not in grade school. It doesn't begin in the classroom. It begins at your table in your home. We nourish with our time. We nourish with our words of encouragement. We nourish with our affection. Your heart is the most important thing that you will bring to the table. Your heart, teaching your children to bring their heart, making it a safe place, a safe environment for the heart to be there. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 1 says this, Better a dry crust eaten in a piece than a house filled with feasting and conflict. Can I tell you again, if you, if you don't have the capacity to make a four-course four meal, don't make a four-course meal because your best is your heart, not the food. Sure. 
Thirdly and lastly is you need to unplug from distractions. Plan. You need to nourish. You need to unplug. Reduce distractions to elevate what is most important. This word distraction, anything that prevents someone from giving full attention to. The presence of agitation in mind and emotions. I don't know about you, but there's times that I can come home from work, and yes, I work in a Christian environment. I, there's times I can come home from work, situations are happening, and I can, I can feel anxious. I can feel frustrated. I can even feel angry. I can drive down the road, and a stupid driver can make me feel angry. You know what I'm talking about? Can I tell you that we have got to get to a place that we, we don't, we're, not, we're not coming to the table with all of our agitations. We're not coming to the table without, with worry and all these things. We're trying to come to the table to be the best that we can. This table that God prepares in the midst of our enemies is a peaceful setting. It's a pleasant setting. Why? Because he's the prince of peace. He doesn't bring agitation. If there's agitation at your table with God, it's the agitation you brought, not the agitation that he's providing. He's a God of peace. When you come to the table with God, can I tell you this? It's like in this room and we step into a moment of prayer, there's all these tables that are set for two around this room. You and God, you and God, you and God. Why? Because when you begin to pray, God's attention is not going, ah, oh, shut up, everyone. I want to listen to Kevin. He's going, I got you, Kevin. I got you, Frank. I got you, Jody. I got you, Franny. I got you, Pete. Why? Because God's able to decipher between all of it. And the moment we step into his presence, the moment we sit at his table, the moment we have undivided attention and focus, and his peace is evident. In our fast-paced tech saturated, attention deficit disordered culture. Phew. A lot of words that I use there. But I want you to get it. In our fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention deficit disordered culture in which we find ourselves, Christians, we have to recover this art of undistracted table talk. We've got to come to a place of not just our time with God. How many get so, you, you come to God and God's going, I just want your attention. And he's, you got mine. And he's going, I don't have your attention, Kevin. There's times I can sit down. I'm going, God, this is your moment with you. And I'm going, God, Lord, thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah, God, that's good. There's got to be a place that we go, no, God, I am secluding with you. And this is the same thing that has to happen in our homes. We all need to unplug from this world. Jesus unplugged in order to plug in. He went off to private places, secluded places to unplug from every distraction in order to plug into his father. Matthew 14 says this, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountains by himself to pray. Mark 6:46. after bidding farewell to them all, he left for the mountain to pray. Luke 6:12. It, it was at that time that he went off to the mountain by himself to pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and prayed. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. These, every verse has solitude, wilderness, by himself, bidding farewell, alone, secluded. He would go away to unplug from distractions. And so, Pastor Kevin, you're, 
contradicting yourself because I'm coming together with my family. No, what I'm saying to you is this. In the image of the Father in heaven, as you gather around your table, you need to unplug yourselves. Your family needs to be unplugged. They need to have your undivided attention and you need to give them, they need to have, you need to have their undivided attention. This table is set for two. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The sense is the 10,000 taste buds that are alive in our lives have to be tantalized. Significant point, Genesis 16, 13 says this, talking about Hagar, the slave wife, the slave woman of Sarai who gave birth to Ishmael, it says, she gave, his name, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. Can I tell you what's happening in our homes? Is that you're not being seen and they're not being seen. What's being seen is this. What's being seen is the TV screen on the wall. And can I tell you today, you want to have all these elements in our lives. You want to be able to step for the last four weeks. You go, I don't have time. Can I tell you, you have time at the dinner table. Your time is right there. It's straight center forward. And I ask you today, are you listening? Does your family feel heard? Do they feel seen and do they feel understood? Do you feel seen, heard, and understood? Can I tell you, the beginning, the very basis of rejection is being ignored. That's the very basis. The reason that we are not rejected by God is because when we step into his presence, immediately we have his undivided attention. He knows us. Should that not be significant in our homes? Should that not be something that we try to carry out to go, no, I am human and I am endeavoring with all my being to do this, but I'm gonna direct you to the God that does it all the time. We've got to be present. We've got to learn to look into our family's eyes, enable them to look into our eyes. We're in a culture of distractions of TVs and phones and social media and games and gadgets. Parents, I want to tell you today, husbands, wives, empty nesters, you have the power to change the atmosphere of your home. You have the power at the table. You have the power the moment you walk in the door to go, I'm going to create a new atmosphere. You say, well, Pastor Kevin, I'm tired. You pay something or you invest something. We can all walk in the door and we can spend our time doing something or you can invest your time doing what's good and there's going to be a return because what you sow, you reap. Unplug, turn off the TV. Unplug, have a no electronic device rule at the table. Unplug, listen to understand. Unplug, guys, I, can I can't express this enough. Learn to look into people's eyes. I'm 59 years old, still learning to look into someone's eyes when they're talking to me. Luke chapter 22, as I close. Jesus said, "For the, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves at the table? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But Jesus comes back and says, but I am among you as the one who serves. I want to challenge you today. 
Yes, it's important to be served, but it's also important to serve. And if you're here today going, yeah, if my family would just, if my parents would just, if my wife would just, if my husband would just, and I want to challenge you to come back not to the fact of that you're reclining at the table waiting for someone to serve you. Jesus gave us this example that we're at the table to serve. It's a heart of givenness. It's a heart of give and a heart of take and more so giving. And it's not based upon what someone else does. It's about giving. It's about restoring. It's about being. Today, as you bow your hearts, bow your heads as well. We've been in five weeks of the family. Five weeks of the family. And you are here whether you have you're an empty nester, whether you're single, maybe you have kids under your feet all the time, maybe you're tired, maybe you're exhausted because your grandkids came over, whatever it might be. But as we step back into this message today, I want to ask you a question. How many in this room, with no one looking around, how many in this room are challenged to put the table front and center. Would you just lift your hand to heaven? You're challenged to put your table front and center. The conversations that take place, the tone that needs to be there, the planning, the nourishment. God, today, as you see every heart and every life, God, we do live in a very fast-paced culture. There are so many demands, and God, I don't want to make light of the demands. I don't want to make light of people's hectic schedules. But God, today I sense in my spirit, just like you challenged me this week, am I going to spend my time or are you going to invest my time? God, today I pray that we as individuals would be confronted with that concept. That either we're spending it and it's gone or we're investing it because it's going to come back up sometime, someplace. God, in this room, I sense that there are people that have been convicted of certain things, and at this moment, we just want to confess those things. Would you respond to the Holy Spirit this morning? What is it that you feel convicted over? Not what your spouse should be convicted over, not what your child should be convicted over, but what do you feel convicted over? And God, today, God, in transparency, as I lead this congregation, I'm convicted about the continual distractions in my life. God, I know that it is my place in life that I have to set them aside. So God, I confess that to you. God, each person in this room, as we come and we are convicted by something, God, I pray that we would choose to lay it aside. Just choose to lay it aside. Maybe your error is on the planning. Maybe your error is on the distractions. Maybe your error is on the nourishment. Maybe your error is that you bring in the wrong atmosphere whenever you come. And today, God, we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, the conviction of your word. Come on, let's thank him for it. And God, we ask that you would change us. God, that our thinking would be renewed, that our lives would be transformed. God, where we've conformed, God, you tell us to stop being conformed, but to be transformed. So God, today we are wanting to take a step of transformation this morning. And God, I pray over every family. God, every family, whether, they're, whether, whether that, that looks like a single in a home, to a grandparent in a home, to an empty nest, to children, 
God, whatever it looks like, I pray over every home today. God, would you be the center of their home? God, would you be the light in their home? Would you be the atmosphere of their home? God, would you redeem what is broken? God, redeem what is broken in the name of Jesus. And God, we thank you for it today. We thank you that you are the God and God, uh, God of the home, God of our culture. So recreate in us what you want it to be. Recreate through us. God, as we step into the circle next week, recreate through us. And God, we give you all the glory. And everyone said, amen, amen. Our prayer team is coming around the front to pray with you. You maybe have a prayer need for your family. Let them pray for you. Otherwise, whatever prayer request is there, we believe in the power of God. We believe in the power of healing. We believe in the power that God is here in this building. And we also believe in the power of laying on of hands and anointing with oil. So if you're here and need that, we would love for you to do so. We have a lot of things, activities that are coming about. Make sure you pay attention to those. God bless you. Come prepare next Sunday for the pop-up coffee booth. Is that correct? To support our, our young adults. God bless. Have a great day. Here at Relevant Life Church, it's our mission to see people connect with God, relate to one another, and reach our world. This single statement drives everything we do as a church. Our hope is that today you were encouraged in this. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.